Philip P. Bliss was a famous hymn writer and one of the most masterful classic hymns that he wrote uh, is Man of Sorrows, What a Name. And that hymn uh, has five stanzas. And each of those five stanzas ends with the refrain, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And I think he got it exactly right. Because you see, it is actually not possible to really understand who Jesus is. And it's not possible to really understand what Jesus has done and not say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And indeed, that is our aim today. We want to give great praise to our great Savior. And in fact, that is the very uh, climax and the meaning of this passage as we read in verse 12. And therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is the Lord speaking, because the Lord knows the great things that Jesus has done, and that the great things that Jesus has done deserves nothing less than great honor. So this morning, we want to give great honor to the great Savior, and the first thing that will help us to do that is to notice that Jesus poured out his soul to death. Jesus poured out his soul to death. Now, do you remember in the New Testament how Jesus' disciples, they were, you know, in many ways, they were just like us. They were struggling to pray. They didn't know how to pray. And so they came to Jesus and asked him to teach them how to pray. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, It's the Lord's Prayer, of course. And do you remember the one phrase that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, your will be done. Your will be done. To me, that's such an interesting and a very important thing because as I look at the world around us, throughout history and even today, the world is full of leaders who talk better than they live. They all talk a good game, but can't quite follow through. Uh, Last year during the pandemic, we had a very interesting example of that. A very prominent Sacramento politician told everyone to stay home, only to be caught having a lavish meal in public with other people. Do as I say, not as I do. You know, that's the common refrain of human leaders. They all talk a good game, but can't or don't follow through. But we can never say that about Jesus. Because in verse 6, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what that tells us is that all of Jesus' suffering and death have their origin in the Lord. It was God's desire. It was his purpose 
to provide for sinners a substitute, to provide a righteous Savior for sinners so that He, the Savior, would save sinners by His sacrifice, by His obedience. And so God purposed His Son to suffer and die. You see, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. But then what we read in the very next verse gives us a different side of the story. In verse 7 we read, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Now, I know that this is difficult, if not uh, actually not possible to see, but in the Hebrew language, um, there are certain forms of verbs that's called reflexive verb. What it means is that when you put a verb in this way, it describes an action that you are doing to yourself. And so what verse 7 is actually saying, as for him, he allowed himself to be oppressed. As for him, he allowed himself to be afflicted. And that point is further made by the servant's voluntary silence as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You know, animals don't know when they are being led to be slaughtered. They just follow. And when a sheep is in sheared, again, they stand perfectly still. They're passive. But here the point is that the servant, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, he had full understanding of what was happening to him. And yet, he remained perfectly still, not protesting, not rejecting, but even actively allowing, welcoming, and bringing upon himself the oppression and the affliction. And what that tells us is this. What God ordained for Jesus, the suffering and the death that God ordained for Jesus, Jesus chose for himself. What God ordered must be done. Jesus volunteered to do. So it is both. The suffering, the affliction, and death of the Messiah, they have their origin in God's gracious purpose to save sinners. And it was Jesus' willing, free choice. And so Jesus would never say to his disciples, do as I say, not as I do. Because the Lord who taught his disciples to pray, your will be done. That Lord, Jesus, he gladly and willingly took upon himself God's purpose, his will, and he obeyed. Gladly. Even to the point of death on the cross. And the importance of that is this. Could we really come to Jesus in our most vulnerable moments? Could we come to Jesus really when life's hardships and fierce battles leave us broken and bruised? Could we really come to Jesus if Jesus had gone to the cross reluctantly? And if his heart was not really in it? Could we really come to Jesus in our lowliest and in our most vulnerable moments? 
If Jesus suffered only because he was told to suffer, and if Jesus did no more than what he was obligated to do, you know, we could never come to Jesus in our lowest moments and expect that Jesus would show us compassion. You know, how do you go to someone that you know that they only did what they did for you because they were compelled to do it? They had no choice. They were obligated to do it. So whatever they did for you, it really wasn't out of the kindness of their hearts, but it was an obligation. Could you really go to Jesus if that was the case? When you are broken, when you are weary, when you are ashamed, if there is any sense in which Jesus went to the cross reluctantly, I think it would keep us from coming to Jesus. But what God commanded Jesus to do, Jesus chose to do. The work of saving us, saving us was not an obligation that he could not avoid. But the work of saving us was something that he yearned to do with his whole heart, even if it meant that he had to lose everything. And that is what assures us that we will always find Jesus full of grace and compassion. Because Jesus, he humbled himself even to the point of dying on the cross, he did it willingly, gladly, because of his love for us. And that's what it means when Isaiah says, Jesus poured out his soul. He poured it out, even to death. Secondly, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Now notice in verse that it's the Lord speaking. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now what that tells us is that on top of everything that Jesus suffered, there was an utter and profound loneliness that Jesus suffered because no one around him really bothered to understand who Jesus was or to really understand what he did or why he suffered. They saw him facing suffering and even death, and they didn't give it a second thought. Who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see, it never entered their minds that Jesus was stricken for the transgression of my people, for God's people. And so look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It occurs to me that the goal of modern society is to get rid of guilt. I think that is the whole entire goal of our society today because guilt, what's guilt? Guilt is just bad feeling 
about the self that, that holds us back. And so our society strives mightily that the things that were once associated with shame, there is no longer any shame, but we have to celebrate it all. The things that made us feel guilty, that's just a hang-up that we need to get rid of. Because guilt today is just the feeling that holds you back. But we need to understand when Isaiah, the Lord speaks through Isaiah, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, we need to understand that guilt is not a feeling. You see, when a criminal is found guilty in a court of law, that verdict of guilt is not about the criminal's feelings. Rather, that verdict of guilt is a determination that law has been violated and that the perpetrator must be held responsible. And that is why here, guilt and transgression are considered together, stricken for the transgression of my people, and when he makes an offering for guilt. Because you see, our problem is not that we have bad feelings about ourselves that that hurt our self-esteem. Rather, our problem is that we are guilty of transgressing God's law, and we must answer for our crimes. That's the problem. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came into the world, and he walked among us, and he made himself to be numbered with the transgressors. He made himself to be numbered with sinners who violated God's law. In meaning, he allowed himself to be counted as one of us in solidarity with us. And more than that, Jesus, he did not turn his face from our filth, our shame, and our disgrace, and from our stain. You know, sometimes it so happens that you you'll meet someone who maybe through a horrible accident or disease are left terribly disfigured. And you have a hard time looking at them. It makes you uncomfortable. And you turn your face from them. And in fact, that's exactly the thing that we've been considering in the past two passages, how sin, sin is spiritual leprosy. And the ways that people used to deal with lepers is to exclude them, turn their face from them, because they could not look at them because they were so horribly disfigured. And yet when the Holy One, Jesus Christ, when he came into this world and he saw our filth and our shame, how sin had left us horribly disfigured, Jesus did not turn his face from us in disgust. Rather, he took our sins upon him so that we might see in Jesus someone who truly sympathizes with us. And Jesus did not stop there. We read here that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. If you remember, this passage about the servant, the suffering servant, begin with Isaiah 52, verse 13, with the Lord saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. You see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew the way that leads to forgiveness of sin. And he acted wisely according to that knowledge. And Jesus lived by the righteous understanding. And he obeyed God's law perfectly. And he suffered perfectly the consequences of our sins. So that through what he has done, many are accounted righteous. What that means is this. Once... God's judgment found us guilty. Each and every one of us, we stand before God's judgment seat. And our crimes are revealed, our violations, our disobedience, our rebellion. And we are found to be guilty, responsible, and deserving of judgment. But now, because of what Jesus has done, God's judgment finds us Righteous sinners are justified. Or can I put it this way? Sinners are righteousified. Now, that's not an actual word. I made up that word. But in the Greek, the word for justification and righteousness, they are the same word, actually. Because to be justified means actually to be considered righteous in God's eyes. You are righteousified. So before, in our sin, we were declared and we were found to be guilty. But because of what Jesus has suffered and because of what Jesus did in our place, we are declared righteous, accounted righteous, Isaiah says. And that most certainly does not mean that Jesus makes us feel good about ourselves. Because just as guilt is not about feelings, righteousness is also not about our self-esteem. Rather... What Jesus does is that he takes guilty, stained, disfigured sinners, and he covers them with his righteousness, washes our filth away so that we hear the verdict, a new verdict, not guilty, and we are vindicated from all and every accusations. And this vindication, this new verdict, is the one that no one can appeal or no one can set aside. And that's what Jesus has done. First, he poured out his soul to death. And second, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. And thirdly and finally, Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, as you all know, it's a very famous chapter, a very famous prophecy of Jesus' suffering and death. But there is more. Look at verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. If the servant dies and stays dead, he will not be able to see his offspring. You see, the offspring here are those, the many who find life through Jesus. 
And if the servant suffers and dies and stays dead, there's no way that the servant will see his offspring. And if the servant stays dead, God's promise that he shall prolong his days will also have failed. That is to say, Isaiah chapter 53 is, yes, it is certainly, most certainly, about the suffering and the death of the Messiah. But it is also about the Messiah's ultimate victory and resurrection into glory. And that is why we see God honoring the great Savior with great honor in verse 12. Therefore, I would divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, uh, I think probably most of you know that, that that is an idiomatic statement. It's an idiomatic expression about the glory and the loot that the victor claims after a war. If you fight a war, and if you win, then it's the loot of the war belong to you. That's your spoil. You see? That's your portion. So when the Lord says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, it's an idiomatic Hebrew expression that God is going to reward his Messiah richly for being the conqueror over death and sin. And it's so important for us to understand that the message here is not that Jesus will share the wealth and the loot with the many. Now, that's what it almost sounds like here. I would divide him a portion with the many. It almost sounds as though uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to share the loot with the many people. Now, it turns out that's actually true. Because uh, from the rest of the Bible, we read that Jesus will gladly and willingly share his glory with his people. So that is absolutely true. But however, that is not the point here. Because what is being said here is that the many, the many will be Jesus' portion and spoil for his victory. In other words, what God is saying to Jesus is that because you have conquered over sin and death, I will honor you with many souls. And in fact, that's what we read in Psalm 2, isn't it? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, God honors his son and gives him an innumerable multitude who gladly bow down before Jesus. You see, each and every one of you You are his reward. If I can put it this way, you are his loot. You are his spoil. You are what he fought for. You are what he is entitled to. And you are what he treasures. I mean, does it strike you as a good deal? It really doesn't, to me at least. Really, he suffered everything just to end up with us. 
he endured all that so that he might claim you and me? Well, if that doesn't convince you what grace is, and if that doesn't give you some sense of what love is, I suppose nothing will. Because God rewards and honors his son with you. You are the trophies of his grace. You are God's reward to his son. You are his heritage. Can you imagine? You and I, the creatures of dust. And I mind you, you know, I have that kind of a personality that where I really don't like to get dirty. I don't like it when my hands are dirty. I don't like to touch dirty things. And uh, to tell you perfect, uh, with perfect honesty, this whole pandemic thing hasn't changed me very much because I was already really committed to washing my hands. <laughs> but you know, it's not the dirt that makes me dirty. It's the sin in my heart that makes me dirty. I can roll in the dirt, have my whole body covered with who knows what from head to toe, and yet that is not what makes me dirty. It's the sin in my heart that makes me dirty. And yet, Jesus suffered and died for me and for you. And he considers me and you his reward, his heritage, his treasure. And so God gives to his son an innumerable multitude who gladly bow before Jesus. But to what end? So that Jesus might be their shepherd and high priest forever. Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors. We read here. In other words, Jesus will never stop pleading for his people. However constant our weakness, Jesus' grace is mightier. And however relentless the accusation of the devil, Jesus' ministry of justifying sinners and bearing their sins is stronger. That's what Jesus has done, and that's what Jesus continues to do. He makes intercession for his people. So what can we say to all this except to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Now let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you suffered and you died to redeem us. We can't understand it. And we cannot see what we possibly have to offer to you. And yet we realize it's never about what we offer to you, but the riches of your grace and the depth of your compassion towards us. And so we rejoice, and we are humbled, and with all, we declare your praises. And we pray, O oh God, that in our hearts, our esteem for the Lord Jesus would grow and increase, 
that we would love him, that we would honor him, and that we would treasure him. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.